This is the Church Planting Podcast, brought to you by the Broadcast Network. Broadcast exists to support, train and encourage church planters. For more information about who we are or about the training that we offer, please visit our website at www.thebroadcastnetwork.org. Hello and welcome to episode 62 of the Broadcast Church Planting Podcast. In this episode, we're bringing you the recording of a recent hangout that we did as part of our contextualization month at Broadcast. In this hangout, we had Liam Thatcher sharing from the Bible about how to reach your context. And we'll be following this up with another hangout on Thursday the 23rd of February with Andy McCulloch about church planting on the ground, where he'll be sharing from his experience of planting a church in Istanbul. If you'd like to uh, make that hangout, please visit www.thebroadcastnetwork.org and the full notes on this episode of the podcast can be found at www.thebroadcastnetwork.org slash episode 62. Here is a hangout with Liam Thatcher. Yeah, thanks for that introduction. So yes, I am part of the team at Christchurch London and I have a lot of responsibility, particularly for the teaching there. And uh, we have recently, in fact, just a year ago, moved to a model where we have four church services across the city in very different places. So this idea of contextualisation, even though we're still within one city, is quite an interesting one that we are thinking through a little bit at the moment. Um, So I guess our question today about how to reach your context is quite a practical one. Uh, It has a lot of practical implications. What I'm going to do today is just begin by um, provoking you in a little way uh, and then looking at some of the theory, I guess, behind it from a biblical perspective, uh, just raising a few questions. I won't try and ask or answer every question in the 30 minutes, uh, but hopefully it'll be enough to provoke a conversation in the Q&A as well. And I understand you'll have more practical Uh, sessions in the weeks to come as well so hopefully this will get us started I think the first thing to say really about contextualization is that all of us do contextualize uh, the Christian message whether we think we do or not Uh, all of us translate the message of Christianity into our context because none of us um, as far as I'm aware is a first century Jew so all of us have done some kind of contextualization in taking the message of Christianity and putting it into whatever context we find ourselves in. And the way we embody the gospel in our world is very different to how the early Christians did, because our world is very different. Um, Even, as I said, within a city, our worlds are very different. So when we think about um, reaching our context or reaching our culture, very often I think it's more helpful to think in terms of contexts and cultures, because even within a city, uh, certainly within a nation, a continent, we will have many different contexts, many different cultures. And so we need an adaptability to be able to contextualise to whichever of them we find ourselves in. And contextualization, I think, is more than just about our message. Often you hear people talking about contextualizing your message, and it sounds really like they're fixated on the words. Uh, what are the words we use? How do we express ourselves verbally? But actually, I think contextualizing 
um, or thinking about how to adapt to reach our context is far broader than that. And it affects everything to do with the words that we say, the way that we dress, uh, our architecture, the way we greet one another, our use of technology, the priorities that get communicated through the things that we choose to do and give our time to and the things we choose not to. So here are just a couple of questions. And I don't know your context. Um, they may be very similar or very different to mine, but just a couple of questions. In terms of your church, how long are your services? Uh, why that length? Why not 20 minutes longer or 10 minutes shorter? How did you make that decision? Uh, how do you apportion the time in your services? Do you give more time to singing, preaching, notices, the offering perhaps? Um, and what is shaping those decisions? Um, is it to do with your context or is it things that have been passed down to you? How much have you thought about that? How frequently in your services do you do communion and how similar do you think the way you do it is to the way it was done in the early church? Do you use wine or grape juice in communion, leavened or unleavened bread? Does it even matter? Uh, have you ever thought about whether it matters? Uh, what is the name of your church? Why does your church even have a name? Is that something that would have been done in the first century? Um, what is the dress code in your church, formal or informal? Do you think it's prescribed in scripture or are you maybe reacting against something else in the way that you think about your dress code? What instruments do you use in worship? What would you never think to use in worship? Uh, what job titles do you use? What serving teams do you have? Who gets to serve on them or lead in them? Uh, what kind of building do you meet in? What is the shape? Um, does that even matter? Do you have a car parking team? Why is your church so far away from the people they need to travel by car? You know, all these kinds of questions, and there are far more we could ask. I think point to the fact that all of us contextualise. All of us have made a decision to embody Christianity in a way that does look slightly different from the first century. And we've got to ask why. Um, why are we doing it that way? And have we contextualised well uh, or have we contextualised unthinkingly? See, I think contextualization is something that we cannot avoid, uh, but we must do well. And good critical contextualization is the task of embodying the gospel faithful in an ever-changing world. It's about presenting the unchanging gospel in changing cultures. And it's about recognising that whilst the core elements of the gospel, the person of Jesus Christ and his life, his death, his resurrection and ascension, and all that that includes and represents is unchangeable, the way in which we need to embody it may change as times change, as we find ourselves in different geographical locations, or even as the culture within our city or within our village or town or wherever changes as well. Contextualization is really all about sharing and embodying the gospel. And actually, I think that word embody, which I've used a few times already, is really a powerful word. It's a deliberate choice of word, because I think that probably the most powerful biblical example of contextualization is the embodiment of God. It's the incarnation so in John chapter one, we get this moment where the word becomes flesh and it says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made without nothing was made uh, without him. Nothing was made that has been made. And you get this sense that Jesus predates uh, everything uh, and everything is created through him. So in that sense, Jesus, the word transcends culture. He is not the product of a culture. In fact, all 
culture somehow finds its origin in him. He's not constrained by culture, but then it goes on, verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. So this eternal son who transcends culture takes on flesh and makes his dwelling among us. And he is embodied Um, And not just embodied generally in some kind of abstract sense, he's embodied in a particular culture. Jesus came in a particular form. He took on the body of a Middle Eastern first century male Jew rather than a 21st century London hipster. You know, he, he, he took a particular cultural form. He didn't just come as a person, he came as a particular type of person into a particular context. And I think it would be a mistake to assume that um, because Jesus came in this particular way at this particular time, that tells us exactly how God is in his eternal state. I don't think God has always been eternally a Middle Eastern first century Jew. Uh, The eternal son who transcends culture comes in a form that makes sense for that context. So that as John goes on to say, although nobody has previously seen God in seeing Jesus, Jesus had made him so this is contextualization god is contextualizing and this very literal approach of embodying i think becomes a pattern for how we are also to faithfully embody the unchanging um, truths of the gospel in a changing world in various different contexts and i think if you look at well, particularly the book of Acts, but also, I guess, running into the epistles, uh, you see plenty of stuff about contextualization. Uh, I want to give you just one example. Now, obviously, in the Q&A, we can pick up and look at um, far more. But I think that we see in the book of Acts, we see really the act of contextualization as the gospel goes from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. And then in the gospel, uh, sorry, in the epistles as well, I think we see some of the methodology spelt out, um, particularly as Paul explains or defends his practices against Against, um, against various questions about his ministry. So maybe we'll get a chance to look at some of those. But uh, let me give you one example. And it's a bit of a classic example. Whenever people sort of talk about culture and contextualization, they often go to this passage, but for good reason, I think. It's Acts chapter 17. And I should say um, a couple of things. Firstly, uh, I'm going to go through this very, very quickly. I understand that. And I'm going to give you lots of bits and pieces and so you will either freak out or geek out depending on what your temperament is and how much this sort of thing excites you and you may find it helpful to have Acts 17 open in front of you Um, and if I were teaching this on a Sunday or something like that I would have slides sort of putting this all up Um, the weird thing about this setting is I can't see any of your faces so you may be asleep or you might have left and this might be a horrible practical joke I don't know so I won't know if you're with me but I'm happy to send you notes or slides or whatever afterwards if that helps um, what I want to do is just show you an idea of how Paul contextualizes. I'll go very quickly um, and sort of weave it together and then I'll draw out some principles at the end. In Acts chapter 17, Paul visits three cities, actually. So he starts uh, in Thessalonica, uh, where there's a synagogue. And so he goes in, as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. And I think it's interesting there. uh, It says it was his custom. It was his planned approach, the thing that he seemed to do everywhere, that he goes along and he has this habit of going into the synagogue and reasoning from the scriptures, from the Jewish 
scriptures. This seems to be an approach that works for him. Uh, actually, it doesn't work in this instance. They uh, respond fairly badly. And so he moves on to Berea. And when he gets to Berea, he actually does exactly the same thing. He goes into the Jewish synagogue. Uh, the difference about this time is not that he adapts, really, but that the people respond differently. Um, so you've got this pattern that seems to work for Paul. He goes to the synagogues, he preaches um, to the people who understand the scripture. He preaches from the scriptures that they um, should at least understand and wrestle with. And sometimes it works. Sometimes people respond badly. He then moves on to Athens. And while he's at Athens, uh, this is a completely different cultural context. Actually, he begins with the synagogue again. Um, verse 17, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons. And then, end of verse 17, in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. And here there seems to be something different. Paul has looked around the city and his spirit is provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. And he realises that even though he starts in the same way he usually did in the synagogue, he quickly realises he needs to adapt for this very different context. I want to give you some details about the context. And uh, this may feel like overkill, um, but I think it's illustrative of a very clever approach to contextualization. Uh, Athens was one of the most culturally significant cities of the day. Um, in the 5th and 4th centuries BC, um, Athens' art and literature was unparalleled. Um, and the people of Athens were known for being very religious, or at least very superstitious. So Sophocles wrote that Athens, they say, is the most God-fearing city. And there were temples everywhere. There were statues everywhere, statues of the Greek gods, actually of the Roman gods as well, just gods and gods everywhere. Uh, and actually, when it says that Paul saw that the place was full of idols, the Greek word, it means submerged. So this is a city swimming in false gods or in gods everywhere. And I don't think this is an exaggeration, actually. The Roman satirist Petronius wrote, it was easier to find a god than a man in Athens, which is um, kind of fascinating, really. The people were so superstitious and so afraid that they may have missed one of the gods in trying to placate them all, that they actually created altars which were inscribed to unknown gods. And there are references to that. And I can, if it would help, send you the ancient references if you would like. Uh, it just feels like the ultimate insurance, uh, really, just this kind of divine junk draw. They're like, well, this god, this god, and then any other, <laughs> uh, just to really hedge their bets. It was a religious and very superstitious city. So it was a place of great culture, a place of great... Um, religiosity and superstition. Uh, it was also known as a centre for reason. So the Athenians were known for their curiosity. Many writers refer to that. Uh, they always wanted to explore new ideas. And actually, the Athens was a location for intellectual tourism. So people would literally travel across the ancient world to get to Athens to spend time there learning and exploring ideas um, as some kind of holiday. Um, and Socrates, who was perhaps the archetypal Athenian philosopher would spend his time in the marketplace discussing ideas with whoever wanted to talk with him. He was very accessible. Uh, and these ideas were not just vague philosophical notions, they were dangerous ideas. In fact, um, it was because of some of these ideas that he discussed in this marketplace that he was eventually arrested and tried and, um, and put to death um, because of his ideas. Ideas have consequences. But Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, all these people who have been so prominent in Athens, uh, they all had groups of disciples that over time branched out and formalized into groups. And by the late fourth century, you had a number of competing schools of philosophy uh, operating. Two of the most significant were the Epicureans and the Stoics. Um, 
as I say, I can't see your faces. I've no idea if you're with me, but I'm going to keep going because uh, I enjoy this stuff at least. And I hope at least some of it makes sense to you. And hopefully it will make sense as we get through later. So two of these groups, the Epicureans and the Stoics. Firstly, the Epicureans, um, they were named after their founder, Epicurus, who was born in 342 BC. And the Epicureans lived a simple life. Uh, they lived for pleasure, but they shunned particular things that brought the potential of pain, such as sex, relationships, children and marriage. Um, on which I will make no further comment. Uh, but the Epicureans were deists. That is, they had a view of God. Um, they believed in the gods, but they believed that the gods were quite separate from us. They didn't trouble themselves with the affairs of this world. So they believed that the gods were essentially transcendent. That is, they were far above from us. They were distant from our world, sitting up there in their own kind of state of bliss. Their gods don't give us anything, nor do they require anything from us. And so one of the things about the Epicureans is that they were particularly critical of the temple systems, uh, which required upkeep and uh, resulted in many people giving time and finance and money and sacrifice to serve these gods who, according to the Epicureans, didn't actually care what we did. Um, so they were very critical of the temple systems. Uh, their view of the world was that it was a chaotic place, not governed or ordered by the gods. Uh, it's a sort of dispassionate, impersonal place. And the big evil, the thing that they really railed against, was the idea of fear. And the Epicureans, in their philosophy, sought to show that really there is no reason for fear, because the two big sources for fear, uh, which they consider to be religion and death, really have no fear for us because gods don't care. Um, they are dispassionate. And really, there is no afterlife, so there's no point in worrying about it. This was sort of the core of the Epicurean philosophy. Nothing of us survives, and there is no judgment to worry about because the gods really don't care. They're not going to judge us anyway. So you've got this school of thought, the Epicurean uh, school. The second school that was prominent by the time that Paul arrived was the Stoics. And the founder of the Stoics was a guy called Zeno and he would teach in the public places, in particular in the marketplace under these arches, which were known in Greek as the Stoa, hence the name Stoics. And the Stoics were pantheists, uh, pan meaning all, theos meaning God. So uh, the idea behind pantheism is that God is in all and all is God. Um, so Tertullian writing about the pantheist's view, um, uh, sorry, the Stoic view of God, um, says that their God runs through the material world as honey runs through honeycomb, which is quite an evocative way of putting it. Essentially, God for the Stoics is the soul of the world. So if the Epicureans thought that God was transcendent, he was distant from the world, the Stoics, they tended to think, no, actually, he's close. He's imminent is the word. He's right here. In fact, he is in this world. He's not beyond the world. He's part of it. But it's kind of impersonal. And there's a crossover, I think, between the Stoic view of God and of the world. And they spoke of the world as being a cosmos, an ordered place. Cicero wrote, nothing is more perfect than this world, which is an animate being endowed with awareness, intelligence and reason. And that word reason was so important for the Stoics. It's the Greek word logos, um, and this divine order and reason and logic that governs the world. The world for the Stoics is not a chaotic, disordered place. It is ordered and it's inherently divine and it's held together by this logos. And the goal for humanity, according to the Stoics, was to live in harmony with this principle of Logos. 
And life for Stoics uh, didn't end at death, because since God is in everything, at death we get absorbed into the universe and become part of this eternal cosmic being. So just as God is uh, impersonal, uh, according to the Stoics, our future and life and death is impersonal. We simply become absorbed into the divine fire of the Logos and the cosmos. Now, that's a lot of random things to just throw at you, particularly on a Thursday night. Um, but I think all of that is fascinating because of what comes next. When Paul preaches, um, he preaches in such a way that I think is it is inconceivable that he has not at least thought of and engaged with the Epicurean and Stoic views. I don't think that it is it could be coincidence that Paul preaches the message he does in the way he does uh, without having thought, how do I faithfully embody the unchanging gospel in this world that is very different to Thessalonica and Berea and, and Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria? I think he's thought about it very, very well indeed. It's in this setting, this city that is submerged with gods and shaped by these philosophies that Paul arrives with the message of Jesus. And whereas in Thessalonica or Berea, he was able to just engage in, uh, in fairly simple ways, going to the synagogue, preaching from the Jewish scriptures. Here, he needs to just start from scratch. He doesn't change the message, but he puts the message in a different way. The eternal gospel of the eternal son is still powerful. In fact, it's it's got to be powerful. Uh, it can't only be powerful for the Jewish people. It really is a life-changing message for everyone, for Epicurean Stoics and everything in between and beyond. But Paul realises that the connection points, the language he uses and the approach he takes need to adapt to make this eternal truth sing in this context. So here's what he does. Uh, verse 17, I believe. Yeah, verse 17. He is in the marketplace. So he's in the very place where Socrates has gone before him. He's standing under the the arches under the stoa where the stoics had reason he reasons with the passers-by who are described in verse 21 as um uh, uh people who would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new he kind of recognizes there's this culture of talking about new things and he taps into that we find verse 18 the stoics and the epicureans start to engage with his message and what they say in verse 18 is that um, he seems to be advocating foreign gods, which is incidentally the very charge that was levelled against Socrates and that led to his arrest and his death. So they take him to the Areopagus, uh, verse 19, um, which is the council that gavin governed Athens and was responsible for every area of public life. And they have this meeting surrounded by the gods and the temples and the altars and the philosophers and the inquirers and the sceptics. And they ask him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our is and we'd love to know what they mean and i won't read uh, paul's speech but I, I will try and summarize it and show you all the connection points because it really is a masterclass of a man who has read and understood and thought about embodying the message powerfully for this culture essentially what he does is this in a few short sentences he engages both the superstitious and the skeptic the epicurean and the Stoic. And he draws them together, showing how the very thing that all of them long for is found in the unchanging Son of God. So he says, well, look, essentially, you, you're clearly searching for the gods. Uh, I'm going to summarize and skim over these verses, but check the verses. Check I'm not making this up as I go along. Read them. Uh, he's essentially saying, you're clearly searching for the gods. You even have a shrine to an unknown god. Let me try and make that unknown god known to you. And then he addresses some of the core things of the Epicureans. It's like he's saying to the Epicureans, essentially, you're right. 
the God you are seeking is transcendent. He is separate from the earth. He made the world and everything in it. So he stresses their creation. And you're right, actually, to be critical of the temple systems because this God doesn't dwell in temples. He's not limited like that. He's not an insecure deity who needs us to serve him as the sustainer of everything. He doesn't need to be sustained by us. But, and then here comes the challenge. Actually, he is closer than you think. I'm not saying you've got it all right, says Paul. He's closer than you think. But then it's like he turns to the Stoics and he says, well, you're kind of right as well, because God is imminent. He's here. He's present. He's in reach. He's not far from any one of us. And he is involved in this world, bringing order and provision and harmony instead of chaos. But, and then here's the challenge, he says it's a mistake to think that this God is the cosmos because actually he's the Lord of the cosmos and he gives us life and breath and everything. And then it's like he addresses both the groups and he says, look, this God is more personal than you've ever imagined. And he quotes two Greek authors, a philosopher and a poet, and he says, essentially, follow the logic of your own art here. In him we live and move and have our being and we are God's offspring. And it's like he's appealing to them and saying, well, if your artists are right, then the God of whom we are, his offspring, cannot be an impersonal God. How could the impersonal give birth to personhood? God is neither creation itself nor a created thing like any of the hundreds of statues we see around us. He's a loving, personal being who created us to reach out and find him and get this. He's not far from any one of us. To the Stoics. This divine order, this logos, is not an impersonal force. It is actually a person, a man whom God has appointed. The logos became flesh. He took on physical form. He's a person who walked among us and his name is Jesus. And incidentally, if you, you want to read about this, uh, Luke Ferry's brilliant book, uh, it's called, uh, mm, what's it called? Learning to Live, I think. It's got two titles. Learning to Live is one of them. It's a brief history of philosophy. And he's got a whole section on how essentially this idea of the incarnation um, just transformed and overthrew through Greek philosophy, which had held um, such a place of power until this day. It's a brilliant chapter. Do check it out. Um, I think I've actually written some stuff on my blog if you do want to check it out. And I can send you notes on this as well. But essentially, he says that this logos is a person. The thing you're longing for is a person. And the great fear that all philosophy is trying to deal with, which is fear of death, has an answer. And the answer is not, as the Epicureans say, just we cease to exist, nor is it, as the Stoics say, that we become some impersonal part of the cosmos. Actually, the answer to the problem of death is the logos who overcame death the resurrected lord the transcendent god became imminent the unknown god has become known and there is life and eternity and resurrection for all who trust in him and that obviously was a whistle stop <laughs> um summary which ironically probably made paul's sermon longer than his actual words were but there we go uh, but i would put it to you that essentially the core of that message is no different to what paul first heard uh, what paul preached what paul heard from the apostles what paul um, taught in thessalonica or berea or anywhere else um, it is the same core message delivered to everywhere else but the packaging has changed because paul has gone to great lengths to make it appropriate for that context this cannot be a coincidence I think, and I'm, I'm aware my time is running out, um, I just want to give you three insights into what I think Paul has done here, because I think this is very calculated. This is very well thought through. 
And I think there are three elements to Paul's uh, preaching here. There are many others we could draw from other passages. But I think, first of all, we see a humility in Paul's approach, which is so important as we think about reaching our context. See, when Paul arrives in Athens, he doesn't assume actually that he is somehow bringing God to Athens as if God isn't there without him. Rather, he arrives, he finds where God is already at work, and then he teaches the people there to use their senses to find him. As he says, God is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. And in a weird kind of way, I think that means that God doesn't really need our service. He could reach people totally without us if he wanted to. It's an incredible grace gift that he does choose to use us in reaching people. And Paul has this humility to look around and see where God is at work. And then he affirms certain things about the Athenian beliefs. He doesn't actually tell the epic and the Stoics that they got everything wrong and they needed to scrap it all and start from scratch. Rather, he says, well, I see that you're very religious. And he starts off by affirming the good things in the context and then uh, using that as a correction point to, uh, sorry, a contact point to then bring correction and clarity. And I think this tells us really that culture and our contexts are neither totally positive or totally negative. Actually, the doctrine of common grace uh, gives us this idea that uh, God gives grace to all people. And so there are things in science and the arts and um, politics and reason and philosophy um, that are done by people who are not people of faith that get as much of a glimpse of the truth as stuff done by people of faith. That's the doctrine of common grace. And so it is possible for Paul with humility not to come and say I've got it right and you've got it entirely wrong but say I see truth going on here let me appeal to that truth and let me use it um, to direct you towards the gospel and there's lots more we can say about that but just to be clear when Paul affirms the good things about their culture he doesn't uh, concede the uniqueness of Christianity. Not at all. In fact, the idea of resurrection is mocked and scorned in the ancient world. In, in Greek philosophy, it was a laughable idea. And if Paul was intent on having an easy conversation, he would absolutely ignore the idea of a resurrection. So actually, as we engage with our culture, we both use it as a point of contrast as well as connection, sometimes affirming and building bridges, other points saying, I see what you're doing here, but let me correct it. Let me change it. Let me challenge that. Uh, firstly, humility. I'll, I'll go fairly quickly and then we'll go to questions, um, which leads to the second thing, really, which is understanding. I think it is inconceivable that Paul preached this message in the way he did with the words he did uh, without first understanding the culture. I think Paul took incredible amounts of time to really understand the Epicureans and the Stoics. I think some of that would have come through formal learning that he had uh, grown up with. Some of it would have come from just observing people of engaging in conversations, maybe first of all as a participant before he became the, the, the preaching philosopher, as it were. I think he took time to really engage with people. And too often I hear both people criticise Christianity in a way that makes me think, I don't think you've ever met a Christian. <laughs> or actually, sadly, Christians engage with people without actually genuinely trying to understand what's going on. And I maybe we'll share this later, but I, I definitely know times where I've done that. I've tried to ask answer questions that people really aren't asking because I didn't actually take time to understand, to learn, to hear their viewpoint. Uh, understanding is really important. Um, loads more we could say on that. Uh, but then thirdly and finally, Paul, I think, shows great 
creativity. So he cites two Greek poems, uh, for in him we live and move and have our being, and we are his offspring. And these are poems actually about Zeus, which he then applies to the Christian God. And I think this is more, this is deeper than just having a contemporary illustration. Um, I think sometimes preachers think, what's the bit of art I can show to show that I'm switched on or whatever. I don't think that's what Paul is doing here. I think he's tapping into something deeper. I think he understands that the arts are a powerful way of keeping your finger on the pace of the culture and actually really shaping the minds and the thinking of people in a culture. Uh, So in the 5th century BC, Damon of Athens says, give me the songs of a nation and it matters not who writes its laws. I think he might have been overstating that a little, but the point is actually the arts have the ability to shape people's thinking. They often show incredible levels of honesty and clarity of thinking as they plumb the depths not only of rationality, but feeling and emotion. So Paul engages in a creative way that is appropriate for the context. And I think if you broaden this out, Um, to a whole range of things. Um, It's not just about the art that we quote. I mean, earlier I listed a whole load of things about architecture, um, the orders of your service, the length of your service, uh, whether you drink wine or grape juice or communion. These sort of um, aesthetic things are both a response to what our culture says and values, but also a great way of engaging with our culture. Um, And so in each of these areas, we make aesthetic decisions to contextualize. The question is, are we doing it well or are we doing it unthinkingly? Um, There's probably loads more I could say on that. But essentially, humility, understanding and creativity are three things we see in this passage. And if we are to build churches that helps many people take steps towards God, uh, then I think these are three not the only three, but three great virtues we need to grow in. And that's why we exist, really, isn't it? To help people, as Paul says, seek God and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us, for in him we live and live and have our being. How do you assess your context is the first one. What methods would you use to read your context? Well, a few things I'd say on that. Um, I, I, I said earlier, it's a case of contexts rather than context. So, um, so in the city where I live, there are different contexts um, in so much as the people that I engage with in my local area may be very different to the people who are where I work. Um, and so it's about thinking, well, I guess, I guess there are different ways of thinking. It, it, it's do I have faith for reaching people in different contexts <laughs> or really do I have faith for only reaching one? Um, and if you go for one, it's easier because you can invest all your time in you know, focusing there. Um, but actually, I think having an adaptability to change our words and our dress and our presentation and everything for different settings is really important. I think the way that you learn is by genuinely being part of it and um that looks like a whole load of things that looks like reading um, it looks like learning things about the demographics of the area um, it looks like genuinely being a citizen who's engaged so I only know what the needs of my community are um, not really just by googling what are the needs of the people within my postcode but actually by engaging with people about um, observing the way they interact with one another about asking questions about just giving time to think I think too often we just experience something and we log it and we move on, but we don't think, why did that happen? Why did people respond that particular way rather than another particular way? So creating time to stop and think is important. Um, in terms, like, just think about the kind of music people are listening to, the kind of films people are watching, the, the way they treat one another, the 
things they give their time or their money to, those sorts of things, the kind of shops in your area. Why those shops? Why not others? Why do these kind of buildings thrive and not these? Why is their investment there and not there? And, and just being able to ask those kind of questions, which is tiring and, uh, and hard work, I think that's the, the way to start. And not to assume that you can pick up a book that's going to tell you what your context is and how to deal with it. Um, I think it comes by personal experience. Okay, that's really good. And uh, this feeds nicely onto this question then. Um, is it possible to over-contextualise? How do we strike a balance between relevance and authenticity? Hmm. Yeah, well, that's interesting. I mean, I think, um, yes, yes, it's definitely possible to over-contextualise. So I think um, in, in various different ways, and the authenticity thing I'll come back to, because I think that that's an interesting second bit. Um, so pe when people write on context, um, missiologists, who, who, by the way, actually, I really hate the term missiologists. And I find it kind of ironic that the people who are most passionate about uh, mission and getting rid of jargon have created a jargon word in the process to describe what they do. But there you go. That's, that's by the by. Um, but missiologists often talk about four levels of contextualization. So no contextualization, which sort of essentially says, um, the gospel is in no way tied to or shaped by culture. And so therefore we shouldn't contextualize it at all. Um, sort of minimal contextualization, um, uh, uncritical contextualization, which I think is quite a leading term. It's not, I mean, no one's going to say, yes, I've done this uncritically. That's, that's not helpful. Uh, but critical contextualization, which is really thought through and the kind of stuff I'm talking about here, being faithful to the eternal message, but doing it in a changing way. Um, but I guess the, what is often meant by uncritical contextualization is saying, actually, we will downplay the eternal nature of the message um, in favor of making it relevant here. And so um, it might be that people say, actually, that whether consciously or not, um, that element of the message is totally not going to work for my context so it won't be that i'll simply find a way of rephrasing it i'll probably just ditch it entirely and i think people do that all the time and i think that is an over contextualization thing and i think um often for various reasons we end up um creating something that is christianity plus or um which actually becomes christianity minus because anytime you add something to this eternal message it takes away from it and it's syncretism really it's blending christianity with something else we've got to be really careful against that and the authenticity thing um i don't know exactly what you mean by the mess by the question so if i don't answer it come back at me but one of the things that i find sometimes is that um in an effort i know i'm guilty of this in an effort to seem relevant uh we can actually end up being inauthentic to who we are and people see through that um, and having a message that is polished and is well thought through um, and hits all the buttons but has not love <laughs> or has not authenticity just doesn't help at all. I think we need to be um, we need to be full of integrity and full of authenticity um, as we engage. Otherwise, just clever words won't won't resonate at all. Um, yeah, authenticity is really important, which is why I think actually just knowing the culture, being part of the culture and being able to correct it and shape it and celebrate all the good things about it from within is so much more powerful than from without. 
Okay, that's really helpful. If you want more clarification on that, uh, the person that asked that, then please um, obviously type out another question. Um, okay, next one. What does contextualization look like if you're trying to build a church that is fundamentally multicultural? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good, good question. Well, um, let's take it a stage, a stage further back, really. Um, the question... Yeah, I want this to come out the right way, but um, there's a question really, should we be building churches that are multicultural? I think the answer is yes. Um, but I remember talking to someone a few years ago who was really panicking because there was very little ethnic diversity in his church. Um, and I pointed out he lived in a village where there was very ethnic, very little ethnic diversity in the village. So, so actually just the strive for multiculturalism sometimes is that only makes sense if your context is multicultural is what I'm essentially trying to say Uh, in London that clearly is the case it's a hugely multicultural um, place and I think deciding to build a multicultural church um, requires a lot of intentionality I don't think that we have got everything right at the moment Um, but it doesn't happen by accident you have to preach into it you have to structure your leadership in such a way to demonstrate that we value multiculturalism not just in word but in the people that we um, we incorporate into teams but again I think that sometimes the striving for multiculturalism can be done in an unhelpful way because we love the value but don't always have the learning or the knowledge so I chatted to a friend just last week actually who um, is a, a black guy who was in a meeting where people were talking about how to reach the black culture as if there is one black culture and as if people from a distance can make some ideas or come up with some ideas or a strategy for how to engage with this culture that they don't actually share any relationship with so I think um that, that that just was really horribly off-putting to him and I understand why people did that because they get this guy's idea and they don't quite know how to engage with it um, but it goes back to that authenticity thing um, we can only really make a difference if we're genuinely embedded in cultures recognizing that we don't always have it right that we don't know everything we need to uh, engaging in conversation with people asking people to help us asking people who aren't even Christians to help us I mean being able to say to people um, I don't have people like you in my church I don't just mean racially I mean people from you know, different intellectual backgrounds or whatever it happens to be just saying hey how what is it about the church that means that you wouldn't be part of it help me to understand what are your concerns what are your questions having dialogue with people rather than dialogue about people I think is um, really important um, yeah maybe I'm sure there's more that could be said about multicultural life, uh, multicultural church I suspect that Andy and others will have more helpful things to say about that than I will but um now a great quote dialogue with people rather than about them so that's a good takeaway right there um this might lead on to this one then which are some of the biggest areas which you think the church is dropping oh sorry what are some of the biggest areas where you think the church is dropping the ball when it comes to contextualizing in the uk hmm good question um hard to say really partly because anything i say there'll be some church that's doing it really well and so anything that i say is a negative is probably just a negative of the very small world that i (laughs) i get to see um i mean i i I don't think that churches are typically very good with the arts um in terms of being on the front foot of creating culture creating good 
music. I think we typically are a few years behind uh, playing catch up with culture. Um, and so playing songs in a style that people stopped listening to three years ago. Um, but deeper than that, I don't think that the church typically, um, and again, this might just be that I've not seen it done very well. Um, I don't think the church typically makes artists feel really valued beyond what they can bring to the service um uh, and and that probably goes for other sectors as well i think the church often um has an idea of saying oh that's great that you do an inventive job now how can we use that <laughs> rather than how can we help you to engage with your culture and the truth is the church isn't i don't think going to be um a place that really is churning out top 40 hits nor do i really want it to be um but i do wish that the church was better at helping people to engage in their context which are contexts that the church can't yet reach so i think there's a whole load of stuff in the arts um i do think that a lot of our apologetics is asking answering questions that people probably haven't been asking for a long time um and it's so easy just to think uh well all the questions are science and evolution suffering um you know just you can name a top 10 and some of them are genuine questions but they may not be first order questions in the way that they used to be and i think that a lot of our apologetics methods have been sort of take these top 10 questions they're the first questions that people are asking they might have been a few years ago but i do think that a lot has changed in our culture that means that they may be second order questions now and there are other ones we need to get to first and i don't think that our understanding of preaching and apologetics is often caught up with that and a book that i really recommend um which i've read a few times now just done a discussion group with a few people over um is how not to be secular by jk smith which is a fantastic book about what it means to live in a secular world um and how to engage with people's questions and concerns and what they genuinely feel um what it feels like to live in a secular world which i think is very different to how we think it might feel um and that book will really help you to think um, about lots of these different things, but particularly maybe about the questions that we answer and apologetics and preaching. That sort of thing. OK, that's how you might have answered this question then with that, because uh, the question was Paul knew about the Epicureans and the Stoics. What should we be doing apart from reading that book you just recommended to understand our culture? Uh, great. Yeah, I mean, I think Paul so Paul, yeah i think paul did understand and i i'm pretty sure actually that paul understood before he got to athens about this because i think paul would have had a um a, a good um education and probably understood that before um so there was partly like he was learning um through formal ways but then he was also engaging in conversation and learning on the spot what it actually feels like as well and i think those are probably the two things for us so i think there is stuff that we can learn um and then there are conversations to be had on the ground. And I think, um, yep, J.K. Smith's book is great. Um, and there are plenty of others as well. I mean, I, I'm really benefiting at the moment, as I'm sure many people are, from the work of Tim Keller and, um, and uh, some others like him who are just masters at reading their culture and, and learning how to preach to their culture. Now, the problem I have is that often I read these people and I think, wow, they've done it. I want to do it exactly the same way <laughs> without thinking is my culture exactly the same as theirs. So, um, and I think Keller would be the first to say, no, 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 come on. The principles are helpful, but they may need some adapting for your context. So read those kind of books and not only think what are the answers he's giving, but how did he get there? And what's the methodology behind them and be a little sort of critical um, in that. Um, 
read the novels that people are reading. I mean, not all of them. <laughs> some, some that aren't worth wasting our time on. Um, at least read reviews of the novels people are reading if you don't have time to read the, the novels. Um, listen to music. I mean, I don't like much at all of what's in the charts. It just doesn't fit with my style. But actually, uh, there are certain musicians who I know, they speak sort of truth to power and they have a message to say. And so I want to listen to them so that I know what are the what are the lyrics that are in the ears of my people? And um, even if I don't always like it, I'm trying to ask why, why is this so popular? Um, why, if this song had been released three years ago, would it have got the same appeal? What is it about our culture right now? That means that all the lyrics are in this sort of mold and not those molds. Uh, go to places like comedy clubs and uh, music venues and listen to the, the secular preachers of our day and think, why is it that they're, I mean, you go to a comedy club and there are very few topics being talked about. It's not like they talk about everything under the sun. They don't. They talk about three or four topics. Why those topics? Why is it sex, politics, religion? Um, and and how can we preach a different message? Um, yeah. Yeah, I think that's it. <laughs> yeah, good, good plug for comedy clubs in there. I like that. Um, <laughs> Right, we've got a question from our um, friend in Europe. Um, hey there. And uh, how do you make sure that the gospel informs your contextualization rather than your context changing the gospel? Yeah, absolutely. A safety check there. Yeah, absolutely. And I, th- I think that's, um, I'm really glad you asked that question because that would be something I wish I had a chance to say. Um, so I, I think... I mean, syncretism is a big problem, isn't it? It's um, mixing Christianity with other things. Um, And I think there can be all sorts of reasons why we do that. And so, and people may have different tendencies. Some people, it's just that they don't think critically. They just accept things. Uh, Some people, it's more more of a decision like i know that if i stand up for that element of the gospel it will hurt me and so out of fear um i actually decide to give up and jettison that sort of idea of things and and so knowing what your tendency is is really important um i think i'd say a few things i think i'd say uh, integrity is vital um we um so actually in one corinthians when paul talks about this in chapter nine isn't he, he talks about being um all things to all men so that by many means I may save many, many people. And he talks about this sort of adaptability of um, just changing your approach in order to win people. But then the very next chapter, chapter 10 is warning against idolatry. And I, I don't think that's a coincidence because I think actually, as we learn to be adaptable, as we try and engage with people, the temptation just to give in to whatever the idols are of comfort, of wanting to be well-liked, of, of uh, you know, siding with our culture they're so tempting um so i think it's about prayer it's about coming back to scripture it's about not confusing um about being clear what the central things are and not confusing methods with the eternal things so actually if syncretism is one end of the spectrum people just mixing things with christianity the opposite end of the spectrum is people um mistaking cultural things for the eternal things and so you get some people who say oh no it's not possible for a christian to worship in that time signature or whatever and you think no sorry (laughs) you've taken something which is eternal which is worship and not idolatry and you've just mistaken it for a a a, a presentation style a mask or whatever and so that's the opposite end of the spectrum and so it's about being clear what are the key things that i am not moving on um even if they get embodied in different ways 
Well, we hope you enjoyed this episode. And just a reminder that you can find the full notes on everything that Liam was talking about at www.thebroadcastnetwork.org slash episode 62. See you next time.